Jesus' name, amen. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. Now, tonight, I want to pick up on that last word, godliness. We have been looking at the fruits of the work of Christ in our lives that we are exhorted to bring forth, and last week we were considering uh, virtue and moral excellence and knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and then adding to those things, godliness. Now, we want to reiterate, as we have often said here, that when we speak of holiness or godliness, we always want to begin with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ first. Otherwise, we're going to get the cart and the horse backwards. We want to put the truck in front of the trailer, to put it in modern parlance, okay? And so we always need to begin there, because otherwise... We are going to um, we're going to miss the engine that drives holiness and drives godliness. What is godliness? Godliness or holiness is a likeness to God. Part of my preparation was beginning to read J.C. Ryle's book on holiness, and Ryle points out that it is really thinking the way God thinks about everything. Uh, What is it to have a godly outlook on life? It's to view it the way God views it. And so we want to begin by looking at what God values most, and that is the work of his own son in Jesus Christ. God gets all the glory uh, from our lives as we look to him and, and to Jesus Christ for our salvation. Now, we are responsible, though, for the life that we live in Jesus Christ. And that's why we're looking at these verses here. Peter is telling us here, he's giving us exhortations in verse 5 and 6, that as we look to Christ, notice here, applying all diligence in faith, all right? So we look to Christ in faith in verse 5, and then we add these other Attributes, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and godliness. And I want to talk tonight and I think next week about godliness or holiness. What is this that we are supposed to do? Well, we have a responsibility to be godly, to be God-like, to be holy. The Bible says, be holy for I am holy. God tells us in his word, even in the Old Testament, I am holy, therefore you be holy, be perfect. If you want to see heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we are told. The Bible says that uh, without holiness, it is impossible to see the Lord. We must grow in sanctification. Now, one of the problems that we face, particularly here in the West, when we have so many privileges and opportunities and blessings, is for us not to pursue godliness because we're pursuing other matters. And so I want us tonight to see that we, if we are to 
add to our virtue, godliness, then we are going to have to pursue it. This is something that does not come by osmosis. This is not something that comes merely passively. Now, first of all, let me commend you. Because you are doing exactly what you need to be doing to be growing in godliness. So let me commend you. Um, You are seeking the public means of grace. And our confession and catechisms teach that the primary means that God uses for you to grow in grace is the public exercises of his church. It's the public exercise. Now, evangelicalism probably stresses pietism, the private exercises. Now, the private duties are important, and and I want to emphasize those in a minute. But first, let me thank you for being here because this is of the greatest importance. And I've said before, I don't want you to give up on your private prayers, and I don't want you to give up on private Bible reading, but I do want you to make public worship, and I want you to help encourage other members of the church to make public worship the priority of your life. That You know, R.L. Dabney put it this way. He said that the Sabbath is the cornerstone of all piety. It's the Lord's day that is the cornerstone, that meaning that's, uh, that's the, the stone that you put down first upon which you would build the rest of the structure. And therefore, it was important that that cornerstone be perfect and level. So what we do here on the Lord's Day is of chief significance. It sets the tone. But the trouble is that many have grown lax in the Lord's Day and lax then at home. So I want to urge us all to be making some spiritual progress. Now, the weather is warming, and we thank the Lord for that. And uh, that means we get a taste that summer's coming. But young people, um, don't take a vacation from your walk with the Lord during just because uh, the days have more opportunity for other things. You're not in school as you might ordinarily be. We are not to live by impulse, but we are to try and improve our godliness. We need to make that commitment here. Al Muller, in his blog, wrote the following article called The Challenge of Attention in the Digital Age. And in that article, he cites an account of somebody who was older than your average college student, somebody who had started college But then um, other things came into their life and they developed a family and a career, but had decided later in life that they would go back to college. The thing that was such a shock to them uh, was taking a seat in the auditorium where the lecture was being given, and it was a lecture on that particular day on the work of Gandhi in India, uh, that they noticed, despite the you know, relative seriousness of the subject from the back row as the auditorium sloped down to where the professor was lecturing, that this older student could see on the laptops that were open an Amazon page, a Facebook page. Somebody else was shopping. Um, um, There was somebody playing solitaire. Somebody was doing emails. Somebody was reorganizing their social calendar. 
Other people were buying tickets on Expedia.com. Somebody else was doing instant messaging. There is, in the midst of the blessings of the internet and all, there is also, though, a problem. And the problem is one of distraction in not pursuing what is most important, pursuing God. In this article, Al Mohler also claims that internet users spend 32.7 hours a week on the internet. Now, this may include doing good things, but it also may include a lot of things that are getting in the way of pursuing godliness. Some studies say that the average American is watching 16.4 hours of television a week. Um, That's a good bit of TV. So the Christian, we have a problem. We have a new nature. We have been born again by the Spirit of God. We have been delivered from the dominion of sin, but yet we can still yet let our soul starve. One of the reasons you might find Facebook more appetizing than reading the book of Leviticus is because the flesh is always there. And Paul even admitted that we many times, even as believers, do the very thing we hate. We do the thing that is less profitable. So I want us here to consider <coughs> Excuse me. I got it off that time. <coughs> I want us to consider pursuing godliness. And first of all, uh, we'll look at it from the perspective of the wisdom literature. Secondly, from instructions to Timothy. And then thirdly, by the example of our Lord tonight. And then I want to talk about godliness in the home next week. So my three points here, looking at the pursuit of godliness from the wisdom literature, from Paul's instruction to Timothy, and then the example of our Lord. So first of all, um, I want to talk about Proverbs. Proverbs is an important book for all of us, and uh, we're never too old to be reading regularly in Proverbs. It is written as an instruction for the young, to be sure, but it is for their preparation for future leadership. Now, one of the themes among many of the themes in, in Proverbs is that of industriousness. Now, what I want to do is apply that, though, to our spiritual life. Now, I think in Proverbs, it is applying generally speaking, but I want us to consider it with the application and the focus of being industrious or productive with regard to godliness. Now, look with me at Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24 and verses 30 to 34. Proverbs 24 and verse 30. Now, I want you to see here how sloth will destroy your spiritual life and your pursuit of godliness. Now, in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 30, we have from Solomon, I passed by the field of, a, of the sluggard. Now, sluggard, boys and girls, is like it sounds, like a slug. It moves very, very slowly, like a lazy person. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down 
when I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. So he's meditating on what he's looking at. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. So here's Solomon. And he, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's looking at this particular field. And what is it? It's overgrown. It's not productive. There's a lot of uh, garbage in it, thorns, nettles. The wall is collapsing. Um, and, and we find that here, too, in town, don't we? We can look at certain properties and see the dilapidated condition that it's in how the bushes are way overgrown, how there's garbage in the yard, how things are deteriorating. Now, I want to apply this, not generally speaking, but think about our souls as that field or that vineyard. If we are not careful, our souls can look like that. Time Magazine did a photo essay on buildings in Detroit that had... Um, been dilapidated. Detroit, in the heyday of the car industry, had some of the most beautiful buildings. I mean, you can imagine, you know, how we in LaGrange have the Callaways and, and they give to various things so that we can have a, an amphitheater and that we can have a place for the symphony to go and do. Well, you, know, you can imagine, you know, having Ford and GM and Chrysler all there, the, the kind of things they had. But these buildings today are in great disrepair. Some of them are beautiful, but they looked post-apocalyptic. But these pictures illustrate what time plus neglect will do to everything, including our souls. The same can be applied to our own spiritual condition if we neglect our soul. And we probably all know people who at one time seemed quite vibrant for the Lord, active in His servants, full of zeal and energy and love for the Lord and God's people and His church. And now uh, they, they, are, they are not in that condition. I remember visiting a friend of mine, and we walked so closely together in college. He was active as a young life leader. He was involved in his PCA church. But I could tell that something had changed in his life. He wasn't the same person that I seemingly knew in college. He didn't have that joy any longer. He didn't have that faith. He didn't have that zeal for Christ that he once had. How do these things happen? Well, I think more often than not, they happen rather slowly, maybe imperceptibly. This is why you and I must have, we need to periodically be taking account of our souls. What's the condition of my soul? What's the condition of my field in which the Lord is wanting to plow and sow His Word in? Am I allowing the wall to collapse? Am I allowing things to come into my soul that in my younger years as a Christian I would never have permitted Am I allowing things to come through, to use the words of Bunyan, through the eye gate and through the ear gate into my soul? And it's having a corroding influence on my soul, a corrupting influence. Am I allowing the pleasures of life, the love 
of money, the love of luxury and ease to choke out the scriptures. We need to cultivate. If we are going to grow in godliness, we have to cultivate the field. We have to repair the walls. We have to plow the field. We have to get out the weeds. It's going to require sweat and tears and blood at times on our part. It's not easy always to cultivate our souls. Look at Proverbs chapter 26, verse 13. Proverbs 26, verse 13. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road, a lion in the open square. (laughs) Now, yes, they had lions in the Middle East back then. But you still probably weren't going to encounter a lion on your way to town. What is the proverb saying? Here is somebody who is willing to make any excuse so as not to be about what he needs to be about. And how many people find excuses? I'm tired. I don't feel like going to church. I want to sleep in. I want to do this. I want to stay out late on Saturday night. Consequences be what they may on the Lord's day. All kinds of reasons people give why they can't be in church, why they can't be in prayer meeting, why they can't be reading their Bible, why they can't read a Christian book, why they can't find opportunities for godly fellowship. And they're all excuses. Proverbs chapter 6. What happens to the sluggard? who neglects his soul. Well, they come to a very poor condition. Proverbs chapter 6. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Notice here, That poverty, spiritual poverty, comes upon those who just say, oh, just a little more ease, a little more sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands. Not a lot, just a little. Just a little more, a little more, a little more. And gradually over time, their soul is greatly impoverished. In Proverbs chapter 23 And verse 4, Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 4. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from consideration of it. Here's somebody who's pursuing the world. He's got all kinds of energy and zeal to pursue the things of this world. But he can't seem to apply the same kind of industry to his own soul. He can get up really early and Read the Wall Street Journal and watch, you know, the, the morning stock reports and, the, and pregame, the opening of the markets. And watch Bloomberg and, and Squawk Box and all the rest. You've got all kinds of energy for that side gig to make some extra money. But what about your soul? How much time will you devote? Will you rise early to read the scriptures or will you, you stay up if you're a night owl? and read the the Bible or read a Christian book? 
Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 25. Proverbs 21 and verse 25. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. And then Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 4. The sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. In due season, when the, when the season is ripe, he's not doing what he should be doing. You know, David, even himself, now David is in heaven, but King David fell into spiritual backsliding. And, and we know this because we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that, and it's interesting how the, the chapter opens, and he gives that phrase, when it was time for kings to go to battle. Now, why did he, the historian say that? Because he wants to contrast it with where we find David. And what do we find in the second verse? It says, now when evening came, David arose from his bed. Do you hear the contrast? When it was the season to go out for battle, David's in bed. And what happens? And David's not just in bed. When men are in tents and on the march. No, David, it says, when evening came. David's been in bed during the day. And when the sun is going down, David finally gets out of bed. And we know the tragic story that follows. He goes up onto the roof and sees another man's wife. And even after being told it's another man's wife, he continues to pursue her. How did David fall into this spiritual poverty? Because he neglected his soul. He neglected his soul. We all have to remember that none of us are above the sins that we read of in the scriptures. None of us are above the sins that we see people fall into on the news. And often we set our own table when it comes to those sins. We set our own table by not being industrious about our soul, by being the sluggard, by allowing the vineyard to lapse into thorns and the wall to be broken down. These things generally happen gradually over time. And then it seems like suddenly there is this fall here. So we need to add to these virtues that Peter tells us, the virtue of godliness, and we must be diligent about that. Now, secondly, look at the instruction that Paul gives to Timothy. Turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And look at verses 7 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Now, this is an older minister appealing to a younger minister, giving him instructions. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, now listen closely. He says, on the other hand, discipline yourself. 
For the purpose of what? Godliness. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Notice here that godliness is going to require discipline, effort, training, sweat. Let's continue. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Notice that here Paul is comparing the discipline of cultivating our soul with that of physical training, that of an athlete. Now, I know many of you are into athletic training, and that is a good thing. It's part of obeying the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. You were made for physical activity, and you should seek to improve upon um, your physical ability as God gives you strength. Now, we're all in different states of health and whatnot, so we do according to what we can do. But notice here that there is this comparison, though, between one who trains at the gym, or some of you train for the road races, some of you uh, train for uh, golf, and you're practicing for this upcoming season, some of you are training for soccer, Um, we have to practice, and that means we give ourselves to time and effort. Paul is saying, likewise, we are to be training ourselves, practicing for godliness. It is of some profit for our body, but it's even of greater profit for our soul, because it holds the promise. He says, note in verse 8, for the present life and also for the life to come. So therefore, we uh, are like an athlete. We're training um, for whatever it may be. Maybe it's a jiu-jitsu contest. Maybe it's a triathlon. Maybe it's swimming. Whatever it is, We are to be all the more setting time aside for the training of our soul. Verse 14, we are not to neglect the spiritual gift within you. Paul says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, Timothy, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Again, not allowing your spiritual condition to um, dilapidate. Don't be like my houseplants. <laughs> I have neglected and are dying. I was telling somebody they were doing great on the porch. You know, and I think one of the reasons they do great on the porch, well, they get a lot of sunlight out there, and, and I also dump water, and I don't care how much water spills on the floor. It's, it's a porch, and so I give it plenty of water. But then suddenly when I bring them in the house, well, then I'm worried I don't want the water spilling out on the floor and my wood to warp and things like that, and plants are suffering. Don't neglect, Paul says, your soul. Take pains with these things, he says in verse 15. Be absorbed in them. Your progress, notice here, should be evident to all. This ought to be convicting to all of us who are elders, that all of the progress should be evident to everyone, that we are growing in godliness. 
He says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. As you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. You're not doing other people any good if you're neglecting your own soul. If God is going to feed others through you and through your life and your ministry, you need to be also feeding your own soul. We minister out of the Spirit's blessing and out of what he does with us. Now, Paul compares the uh, work that we need to be doing to various vocations here. Look at 2 Timothy verse, chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. Now he says there in verse 1, he says, I want you to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace, not weak in the grace, but strong in the grace of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, he says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. So there's the first vocation that he compares our Christian life to. Be like a, a soldier. Now, we all know soldiers often have to suffer a lot of hardship, don't they, in order to serve as a soldier. I can remember when the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were going on and seeing pictures, boys and girls, of soldiers, and they were asleep in foxholes. You know what a foxhole is? It's where they just dig a hole in the dirt and they get in the hole. They just they, they want to be below the surface of the ground, and so they dig a hole that's deep enough that they can stand in or at least sit in. And, and in these cases, they were lying there. They were asleep outside in the hole while we're sleeping in beds at home. And Paul even says to Timothy that, that we have to endure hardship at times. Now, he is talking to one who's in the ministry, I realize, but I think what is true specifically can be applied to us all, that, that it requires some exercise of exertion on our part. Notice the second person he compares um, Timothy to and is, is that of an athlete. He starts with the soldier, but then he moves on in verse 5 to the athlete. He says, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And then the third person is the farmer. All of these vocations, by the way, interestingly, all have to get up in the morning, don't they? <laughs> you, have to, you have to get up to be a farmer. You have to get up to be an athlete. You have to get up, um, you know, to be a soldier. I can remember I, I went when my nephew, Tim, um, Peter, was uh, at Texas A&M before he transferred to Clemson. Um, I went out and visited him his freshman year and... Um, Woke up, it was like 4 a.m. or so, and, you know, I'm on Eastern time, and so I'm already an hour ahead, and so I lay around for a little bit, and I said, all right, I'm just going to do something, you know, and so I decide, I, I, I put my bike, um, knowing that I'd be on campus, in, in my truck, and I drove out to Texas, so I had my bike with me, and I took it out, and I drove, thinking, I'll just drive around, the Texas A&M campus is huge, you know, it's like six miles, you know, around, and uh, But who was up, I noticed, and the two groups that were up, I noticed the football players were going in to do their weightlifting, and I noticed that the band uh, was going into the stadium to practice. And, you know, the band is part of the military at Texas A&M. And it's 5.15 in the morning. 
uh, Texas time. And, uh, and, and, but they got up. But why? Well, because discipline. Um, you know, SEC football is serious business. And uh, they're not doing once a days if you're playing in D1 football at that level. You're getting up very early in the morning before the dawn, and then guess what? After classes, you're going back onto the practice field, and you're going to put on the pads and the helmet, and you're going to do a second practice. Um, so it was stamina and weight training in the morning and then practicing the actual plays in the afternoon. And, you know, Paul is saying, listen, if this is be true for the lifestyle of a farmer, an athlete, a soldier, are we going to give Christ less? Um, does Jesus get less than Nick Saban? You going to give less to Jesus than what, what the football coaches are asking of their players? Richard Baxter said that idleness is one of the greatest time wasters. Quote, this is from Richard Baxter. He says, when they are convinced of a duty must be done, they, the sluggard, are still delaying, putting it off from day to day. How many of us put off our Bible reading? Day after day. Tomorrow says Baxter. Tomorrow is the sluggard's working day. Today is his idle day. He feasteth his flesh and wishes that this were fasting. He followeth his sports and pleasures and wishes that this were prayer. And a mortified life, he lets his heart run after lust or pride or covetousness and wishes that this were heavenly mindedness and laying up of treasure above. Again, quoting from Baxter, he says, When he is in a duty, the slothful is still losing time. He prayeth as if he prayed not. Meaning, the, the Puritans called it prayerless praying. Prayerless praying. Where you're not really, you're praying to, to make your conscience quiet. But you're not really praying to bring down the blessings of God from heaven. Just enough that I don't have an accusing conscience. Just enough so I can say I did my quiet time. That's what the Puritans here called prayerless praying. He prayeth as if he prayed not, and laboreth as if he labored not. He is slow as a snail, and rids so little ground, he doth so little work, and so poorly resisteth opposition, that he makes little of it. And all is but next to sitting still and doing nothing. He that is slothful in his work for his soul is a brother to him that is a great waster. Proverbs 18.9 If he sees vice in his heart, he does not have a heart to rise up and resist it. Baxter says we should shake off unmanly sluggishness. Do your business, he says. And then he, he exhorts us with regard to the Lord's Day to use the entirety of the Lord's Day. 
He says, work hard on the weekday so that you can rest better and use the Lord's day entirely for your soul, Baxter says. He says, idle persons get behind in their work and then they have no time for scripture or prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, Paul rebukes some of the women in the church who, quote, learn to be idle, wandering from house to house. Romans 12, 11 says, do not be slothful in business, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says, those who do not work shall not eat. You know, I know somebody, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying you have to do this. I don't want to be guilty of the Pharisees' sins who put on burdens that they themselves won't lift. But I'm just saying I knew somebody who would not eat until he had read the Scriptures to make certain that he read the Scriptures. Wouldn't eat. Now, I'm not saying you have to do that. Okay? <laughs> but I'm saying his priority was right. He wanted to seek the kingdom first as righteousness. Now listen, if having some eggs and coffee help you to sit down and concentrate better reading the Bible, then do that. Do what works for you. So we see here that we are warned, if we are to pursue godliness, add godliness to all these other virtues, then we see the need to avoid sloth from Proverbs. We see how Paul instructs Timothy to watch over his soul. And then finally, and this will be the most briefly, the ministry of our Lord. Boys and girls, we find Jesus as a boy at the temple, talking to the teachers and listening to the word of God. Twelve years old. How many of y'all are near twelve? Don't raise your hand, but you know. And Jesus is doing what? He's seeking out the word of God. He's listening. He's talking with the teachers of the word. Now, this is because Jesus had to grow in his understanding of the Bible. Don't write him off and say, oh, he's the son of God. He's a man. He's a boy here. A 12-year-old boy like any other 12-year-old boy. Except he didn't have a sin nature. <laughs> he's a 12-year-old boy who has to intellectually grow, who has to spiritually grow, has to cultivate his soul like any other human being does. And he's where he can be fed. We see that Jesus would take time to pray. Sometimes he got up early. Sometimes he stayed up late. I'm, listen, I'm not going to just make you night owls feel badly here, okay? Sometimes Jesus was up late. Sometimes he got up early. That's why he took a nap on the boat, right? <laughs> Jesus is praying on the mountain when he sends the multitudes home. Sometimes he got up early, we're told, and went out to go pray before his day began. We find Jesus singing with his disciples in the upper room. We find Jesus praying alone. Sometimes he's praying with his disciples. Sometimes he's praying while his disciples were watching. Jesus is a man. And yet, if Jesus, though he had no sin nature, needed to exercise himself in these things, how much more we who do have sin in our life need to be exercising ourselves in these things. Again, don't put the divine nature, don't make Jesus into a demigod. Don't make him into a superman. He is a man, period. 
Don't bleed the divine and human natures together. Jesus is an ordinary man in some sense. I say that reverently. Jesus is the second Adam. He's a man with obligations. He's a man. And yet we see Jesus as a human being doing these things, exercising himself in these things. Now again, let me bring this to a conclusion. Again, I want to end sort of where I began in that the gospel has to come first for all these exhortations that you have heard tonight in godliness. If you are struggling to put on godliness, where do I go? We start with the cross of Christ. We say, Lord, I need grace afresh. I have been neglecting my soul. I've been letting the wall fall apart. I've been letting all kinds of things grow in my garden. And I've, I've, been, I've been neglecting my duties. The sin of omission has been a part of my life. And Lord, I'm coming to you to ask for your forgiveness and to ask for you to send the Spirit to me afresh that I could start again, pursuing you like I ought to be pursuing you, like Jesus pursued you. Okay, that's where we have to begin. We begin with the good news, not with the exhortation. We begin with grace. We begin with saying there is good news for sinners. You can come to the Lord, and the Bible says if you confess your sins, God is faithful to forgive you and to wash you and cleanse you of those things. Number two, don't let idleness overtake you this week. If you are not engaging your soul with the things you need to be cultivating your soul with, then make a plan tonight. Make a plan to set out time. Carve it out in the schedule. Okay, I'm going to read my Bible this week, Pastor. Great. Show me where on your schedule you're going to do that. Tell me in your own head right now, when. Tomorrow's Monday. You going to do it in the morning? Afternoon? When are you going to do it? Don't just tell me, okay, I'm going to do better, Lord, this week. I'm just going to do, I'll do better this week. Okay, I want to do better this week too. But when, where, How? Put it down. It takes discipline. Think of the athlete, the farmer, the soldier. Do they live on a schedule? Yes, they do. They have schedules. They make certain those football players are on a schedule. They don't just say, you let any 18-year-old do whatever he wants (laughs) with a full scholarship. What about the soldier? They have a regulated life, regimented life. They've got a life, you say, oh, but that, that, that sounds so strict. Listen, I think you'll find it's actually will be very liberating. I think if you'll discipline your schedule, discipline your day timer or your phone or whatever you use, I think you'll find a lot of freedom because you, what you'll do is you'll take 
What's, what's my priorities? Here's my list of priorities. One of those near the top needs to be the cultivation of my soul. It's got to be near the top of my priority list. Okay, where does it get implemented as a priority? Or is it just haphazard? Is it just when I feel like doing it, I'll do it? I think you will be better served if you incorporate the priorities into the schedule and then by God's grace try and keep that schedule. If you try to do it happenstance and, ha- and, and haphazardly, then I think what you may be opening yourself to is you're not doing it. And you're not doing it as well as you should and often as you should. You know, I've said this before. One of the reasons I like McShane Bible Counter, I'm not saying you got to do McShane. Do whatever works for you. But the McShane Bible Calendar doesn't lie to me. I can look and see all the chapters that didn't get crossed off, pointing their finger at me. Now, I've done McShane since, I don't know, 1993, 4, I don't know, every year. Do whatever works for you. Um, but having that there, it does keep you on track, and it helps you to see, because you think, oh, I've been reading my Bible this week, and then you're like, ooh, well, maybe I haven't been reading it as much as I thought I'd been reading it. Heads of homes, next application's for you. Um, You've got to set the example for your home. That means family worship, Some kind, it's like an exercise regimen. And I think slow and consistent is better than trying to plunge in to something over the top and very inconsistently. Um, All of us probably have started exercise programs with the best of intentions. This is why you see so many commercials for exercise equipment. At Christmas time. It's not just because it's Christmas time. It's because they know that there's a bunch of people out there who are saying, you know, this next year, I'm going to get in shape. Uh, They know they sell more gym memberships at the end of December and the beginning of January. You ever notice, those of you who have had gym memberships, you know when it's fullest, don't you? When's it the fullest? It's those first three weeks in January. And in in the same way, I think if we are going to be disciplined in family worship, um, we need to not have a fit of zeal and overdo it only to, you know, say I've injured myself and now I have to take a couple weeks off. But start slowly, just as you would for exercise. Those of you who have done long distance running, you know that if you've had a baby or you sprained your ankle on the curb one time and you were, you know, laid aside for many weeks or even a few months. You know, you don't go just exactly back to where you were uh, when, when that injury occurred. But you have to start back slowly. So it is with, with our soul. Um, take smaller steps and do it more consistently if you need to. If you don't know Jesus Christ, let me say this to anybody who may be here, may be watching on the Internet, who may yet not know Jesus Christ. Uh, Reading scripture, coming to church, 
Listening to preaching will help you come to know Jesus Christ. Many people fail to come to know Jesus Christ because they never really get started in knowing him. They may have some initial intentions. They might even take some initial steps in the right direction. But something or some things or some people cause them to turn aside and they become obstacles. So if you are serious about wanting to know Jesus Christ, then you'll need to become serious about the means that God ordinarily uses to come to know Jesus Christ. I think the evangelical church makes the mistake of making it seem like conversion is an easy thing. J.I. Packer has said, most conversions take time. Most conversions take a lot of time. Now, yes, praise God when he does suddenly turn somebody and does so quickly. But I think too often, evangelicals have sold the idea to people that a quick experience is what is needed. That is not what is needed. Slow and steady brings out the true converts to Christ. It's the people who are seeking him Lord's Day after Lord's Day, not looking for some emotional experience to say, aha, I've had an experience. Now I'm in Christ. Many of those experiences prove to be nothing, vacuous. Uh, What is needed is a lifelong pursuit of Christ in his church. If you want to come and you're serious about wanting to know Jesus Christ, don't look for experiences. Look for Jesus Christ by faith. Where do you come to know Jesus Christ? By faith. What we're doing here right now. This will help you and this will help your friends know Jesus Christ. This is the means that God often uses. Now, thank God he uses many, but the most common means is the ordinary worship of God in the public assembly.